0: Hey, sober family, welcome to I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye, the podcast where we're learning to love ourselves instead of booze.
1: And I learned this valuable, valuable lesson. And that is that all this time, I was thinking the more I accumulated for me, you know, things that people would admire, then the more that would, make me feel significant and that I was somebody. But really, it's the exact opposite. The more I gave of myself, then the more it fed this sense of validation and to know that I was making a difference. That's what makes me feel that I'm living a purposeful, meaningful
0: life. On this episode, I'm honored to welcome a very special guest, Martin Lockett. Just after midnight on New Year's 2003, Martin was driving drunk when his vehicle struck and killed two people and left a third one permanently disabled, three people who had just left a clean and sober New Year's Eve party. Martin spent the next 17 and a half years in prison, but instead of letting this incident destroy him, he made the decision early on to dedicate his life to serving others and honor the families he'd hurt with his actions. And so by the end of today's episode, Martin and I want you to walk away with a better capacity to forgive yourself for the mistakes you've made while under the influence and to see that the only way out of our despair is to serve others. So Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for reaching out to me.
1: That was a beautiful introduction, and thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor to be here.
0: Well, it's it's an honor to have you, and I and I know my audience is going to be really uh, amazed to hear more about your story. So, uh, you know, tell us uh, about it, and then lead us toward a lesson that we can take away for our lives uh, today.
1: Sure, um, I grew up in Northeast Portland in the eighties which uh if you're not familiar with that area it was it was very crime ridden it was gang infested drug infested there were drive-by shootings happening seemingly every night and it was it was a war zone essentially however i had the good fortune of having two beautiful loving amazing parents who did everything they could to shield my three siblings and me from the chaos so i have a twin brother As well. And so, for instance, like our dad would have us enrolled in Little League and Cub Scouts and Pop Warner football and wrestling and all these after school activities. And he wasn't just, you know, a dad who would drop us off and pick us up. Right. He was actively involved. He was our assistant coach in many of those capacities. And this was after working a hard day's work at the shipyard. Right. support the family and so we were instilled with good values and morals and treat people equally and that was fine until i got to high school and so through all of that i was also a very shy kid so even though i had my teammates and things like that that i would you know be myself with anybody outside of that circle i would pretty much clam up and and just couldn't you know couldn't speak And so that was a really big factor going into high school because obviously the peer group becomes more central in your life and you need to belong and you need to fit in and you need to be liked and be accepted and all those things. So that was a struggle for me. So what happened was I I gravitated to some other kids who actually happened to live in my neighborhood, but I had never met to that point. And now that I think about it, it's probably because our parents did everything they could to keep us from those kids. And so nonetheless, this became my hangout crew. And, you know, like most teenagers, we did all sorts of things we should not have been doing, drinking alcohol, skipping school, smoking weed, started to steal cars and things like that. The I still remember my first encounter with alcohol. And I was like 14 years old. We were at a party. We were hanging out with this notorious gang member that everybody you know, looked up to and revered and feared and loved and respected. He he, he was everything that, that we were not, but he was a, a friend of the family. And so we kind of had the end with him as far as hanging out and kind of tagging along. And so by proxy, we were considered popular, which was great. But it also came up, you know, there was a lot of baggage that came along with that. And so we're at this party and this guy hands my brother and me a beer. And we're looking at each other thinking there is no way we can drink this like mom and dad would absolutely kill us if we if we drink this beer. But we knew that if we were going to be accepted by this group and especially by him, we had to go along to get along. And so I, I took a few swigs off that disgusting <laughs> liquid and <laughs> I, I still remember like it, it, it heated my chest up was the first thing that I felt. And then, like, all the inhibitions just started to come down, right? This yeah. shy, timid kid could actually speak to people and not break out in a cold sweat. I could actually talk to girls and not fumble over my words. I probably was fumbling because I was intoxicated, yeah. but it felt <laughs> it felt okay to me, right? Right. And so that became that, – that was like my miracle drug, if I'm being honest with you, that enabled me to come out of my shell – and be the Martin that I've always that I had always desired to be, right? And so yeah. that persisted for the next couple of years, drinking kind of more socially. But by age sixteen, my drinking took a turn to a much darker place because at that point, I'm I'm not just drinking to fit in and be liked and be accepted. I'm now drinking to uh, suppress these really toxic feelings about myself the low self-esteem uh you know i grew up in poverty and 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 it was it was a terrible terrible neighborhood but yet when i would go to school because we lived with the school district was in a predominantly white middle-class neighborhood so a lot of the kids there you know they lived in those neighborhoods they got cars when they turned 16 they lived in houses with manicured lawns no trash on the street and so in my pre-adolescent and adolescent brain I'm thinking there must be something that is inherently wrong with me that would confine me and people who look like me to live in this environment but then every white person I had known or had seen lived in a totally different environment so I remember I went through this really difficult identity crisis where when I was in my hood and hanging with my friends there I would dress you know the gangster clothes the baggy clothes you know talk the talk Right, and then so at 16, I got a job at a at a ice cream parlor, and all of my coworkers were white. And I would hang out with them after work. We would go and shoot pool or whatever. But I felt in order to be accepted by them, I had to change the way I dressed, change the way I talk. So I would literally bring my change of clothes to work that were Tommy Hilfiger and Polo, and you know th- these preppy clothes, right? Yeah, that I would have to wear or I felt I had to wear it to be accepted and I would change the way I spoke I mean just everything changed to be accepted amongst these people that I envied and and so that was a real conflict trying to navigate between two worlds two identities two personas that I didn't feel fully comfortable in either one right for various reasons and so mm. I just drank I mean it was it was it was a really difficult time for me The self-acceptance was just not there, and I just drank. And so by 16, I was a full-blown alcoholic. I drank every morning before I went to school, uh, during my lunch breaks. After school, I just lived to drink and to not feel. So fast forward into New Year's Eve of 2003. So I was working at a warehouse. We were getting off work early uh, because of the holiday. So it's about 11.30, and we wrap up. And as we're about ready to clock out, You know i can still to this day hear my boss joke with us and say you guys go out and have a good time tonight but please don't let me wake up and see you on the front page right of course we Mm. all laughed and you know laughed it off and we clock out and i went to the liquor store straight to the liquor store where i bought a fifth of gin i then went to my parents house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time so i get there and i drink the alcohol he and I had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party. And so after I drank that fifth of gin, I then went back to the store where I bought four twenty-four ounce cans of beer, old English beer, rot gut, eight point three percent alcohol, whatever it was. And at that point, it didn't matter as an alcoholic. You just want to get drunk. Right. You want to get as drunk as you can get for the cheapest, you know, the cheapest rate. Yep. So That that was my alcohol of choice. And so I drank those four beers over the next several hours. So 96 ounces of beer on top of a fifth of gin. I mean, just just an unbelievable amount of toxic uh, liquid in my body. And so it's now about 8 o'clock. And then my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out because we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house and the three of us hang out and I think we drank a pint of Hennessy between us and we just killed some time. It's now about 11 o'clock. So we figure it's a good time to head out and go to the party. And as we're walking out the door, his mother from the kitchen, she tells us, you guys, again, go out, do your thing, have fun. But please, please, please be careful. And of course, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, We literally had no intentions of being careful that night, right? And if I'm being honest, you know, sadly, all of us, my friends, we drank and drove on a daily basis. So nobody thought at that point, well, God, Martin, you've been drinking all day. How about one of us drive? First of all, we all had been drinking, not as much as me, but all of us had, had been, you know, drinking pretty, you know, regularly throughout the day. So it was just par for the course. And so we get to the party. We see a bunch of old classmates. It's a great time. People were smoking weed. And of course, we drink more alcohol. And we have fun. We bring in the new year. And I knew that I was, I knew that I was, And I've never shared this actually on any other show. I knew I was extremely intoxicated because I remember literally doing like a strip cheese dance for some girls who were at the party. And like, I would never do that like take my clothes off and start dancing on these women like I'm a stripper like no way yeah but I did it like I just knew that I was I was I was in a bad way so we leave the party just after midnight I take my friend home without incident I get back onto the freeway and at this point all I'm thinking about is how extremely exhausted I am because all of that alcohol had only been absorbed by one fast food meal at about 4.30 that afternoon that I had had. And so I just wanted to get home so I can go to sleep because I knew I didn't have to work the next day. So on the freeway, I remember I began to pick up my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And this Mm -hmm. makes my brother, you know, very nervous. He says, hey, man, you know, you should slow down. You know, the police are out, you know, it'd be in a holiday and all. And I thought, well, that makes sense, right? So I went ahead and slowed down. For a few minutes, I exit the freeway. We're now driving in a residential area. And again, I just want to get home. So I begin to pick up my speed. Now to about 60 miles an hour in a 30, I think 30 or 35 zone. And this time he starts to yell at me, slow down before we crash. And I snap back at him, man, calm down. I know what I'm doing. I got this. I've done this a hundred times. Yeah. Nonetheless, just to keep him quiet, I went ahead and slowed down so we continue to drive for about 10 minutes and we're just at the block where i'm going to drop him off at our parents house and i'm getting into the left-hand turning lane and he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes so he says hey bro let's go up the road so i can get some cigarettes i'm all out and in my mind i'm thinking great you know here's one more stop that i don't want to have to make i just want to i just want to go home and go to sleep that's all i want to do so we drive for two blocks and literally two blocks from that point, there's another intersection. And the mini-mart that we're going to is just beyond the intersection. Mm. And I'm looking up at the light, and the light is yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I knew there was no way I was going to make this light. But it didn't matter because I, I just wanted to get the stupid cigarettes and, and drop him off and go home. So I immediately, in a split-second decision, made up my mind to go through that light. So I, I immediately accelerate, and literally within two or three seconds, boom! I mean, just this this earth shattering sound and impact. The airbag immediately envelops my face, and my car comes to a slow winding halt. And I, I kind of you know feel myself, and I'm like, okay, I'm alive. This is this is good. immediately look to my right and i see my brother who is is moving so i'm i'm somewhat relieved at the fact that we're both you know okay and i step out of my vehicle and you know my first instinct sadly was not to go check on the people i just hit but rather to assess the damage on my car Mm -hmm. because at that point my car was my prized possession right it was a status symbol again i'm still struggling with these insecurities and needing to be accepted and to be liked. And so my car was everything, right? It conveyed a sense of importance. And so I'm crushed. I'm walking around my vehicle. I'm looking at my custom rams that are destroyed. My entire hood is smashed and the car is totaled and I'm devastated. And then my brother gets my attention and he starts to point across the street. Where the car had had spun, I think it was about sixty or seventy feet, is what the police report had, had shown. But he's pointing across the street and he says, "Hey, man," he said, "I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there, and um, it doesn't look like they're moving." So instantly, I, I kind of snap out of you know what I was thinking about and realized the magnitude of what I had just done. Yeah, but obviously, there's no time to process anything because I'm intoxicated. But within seconds, the lights and sirens are everywhere and the policemen are on the scene and and they're talking to me. And about, I don't know, two or three minutes into that interview, that officer had confirmed to me what I had intuitively known to be true, which was the person who was lying on the pavement had died and he had informed me. That another was being driven by ambulance uh, to Emanuel Hospital just blocks away. So I'm placed under arrest. I'm put into the back of the cruiser. We head downtown for processing. And I'm listening to the police radio from the back seat because there's a lot of chatter about the crash, obviously. It comes over the police radio that unbeknownst to me, there was apparently another passenger who was in the vehicle who had... Died at the scene. So I'm 24 years old. I'm hauled downtown for processing on two counts of manslaughter in the first degree. And I'm 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 wrestling, I'm trying to grasp two very heavy, heavy realities. Which is one, I'm responsible for two people's lives that I had never met, who are no longer here because of my senseless, reckless actions. And then on the other hand, based on the law in Oregon, the mandatory minimum sentencing laws that required, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, required a mandatory 120 months, otherwise known as 10 years, day for day, for every manslaughter in the first degree. And now I've got two of them. So needless to say, that was, that was the worst day of many people's lives.
0: I think... Uh... For me, the most fascinating part of your story is what comes next. And I'm curious to hear you tell us about, as you went through the process of, um, over the next year, uh, working out back and forth and the the plea bargain process and the judge who had to recuse herself, et cetera, um, and how, when you finally, uh, when it was finalized, that 17 and a half year sentence, how... Um, You went into uh, prison kind of with the weight of that on your shoulders. So how did you process this uh, without also destroying yourself in the process, if that makes sense?
1: it does and there are a couple of different layers to that so three days after this this tragedy i'm in my cell i'm just minding my own business and i noticed that someone had slid the state newspaper underneath my door and i thought there must be a reason <laughs> they're doing this i didn't ask to see a paper then i see my picture on the front page of one of the sections and with each paragraph that i read that morning for the first time since this had happened you know my victims became people and these people had an incredible story. And you outlined at the int- in the intro that they were involved in recovery. They had devoted their lives to helping people get clean and sober. So specifically, they volunteered with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, ironically. They would watch women's children so that they could attend AA and NA meetings. They were all about recovery. And like you said, that night they were coming home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party. And so the columnist had talked about the, he called it a palpable irony, uh, which is what I actually uh, uh, titled my my memoir, the first book that I, I had uh, mm-hmm. written and published. But he said, quote, at the at, at the end, there's a quote that changed the, the course the next 17 and a half years and even to this day and will forever, you know, uh, shape the rest of my life. And he said, perhaps... The person they would have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them end quote and that was a heavy heavy way to end that article and although i couldn't at that time i couldn't fully appreciate you know the magnitude of, of that statement and what it was going to mean for my life because i'm still processing the fact that i'm probably going to spend the next 20 years in prison but i couldn't ignore it either right so i had to Yeah. Meditate on that phrase and figure out how I was going to apply that phrase to my life. So I eventually come to the conclusion that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's amazing legacies and helping people who are struggling in active addiction and getting the word out about the irreversible consequences of drinking and driving. And so I committed to that. I didn't know what that was going to look like, how that was going to manifest over the next 17 and a half years, but I knew I was committed to the purpose. And so I went into state prison with that as a mindset. And I you know, enrolled in whatever educational courses I could take at the time. So there was one, they were offering one community college course, and you could only do one per term. And so I I figured, let me start there, right? It's a start. At the time I had a GED. So um, there, was, there was not much college experience. I had taken a few college classes before with each class that I took. know i gained a bit more confidence and i thought you know this this might actually just happen right i might actually be able to get a degree and so fast forward three years and i lost my father and but in 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 that happening i was able to get money to fund my own education because uh contrary to a lot of people's beliefs there is no federal funding or state funding for that matter, for inmates to get a college education. That went away in the 1990s during the tough on crime era. Um, So I privately funded my education by taking classes through Louisiana State University, Indiana University. I parlayed all of that into an associate's degree from Indiana uh, University in 2010. I then went on to get a bachelor's in sociology uh, from Colorado State in 2013 and then I I, uh, pursued a master's degree and got that in 2016 from California Coast University so that was when I really started to kind of unravel a lot of these adolescent motivations and youthful um you know indiscretions this dark road of alcoholism and crime and and just you know recklessness And so the more I was able to understand psychologically and sociologically uh, the influences that kind of made me who I was, then I was able to start to kind of deconstruct those, trace them to their origins, process what I need to process, and then reconstruct a positive identity that was rooted in service to others, right? And I learned this valuable, valuable lesson. And that is that all this time, I was thinking the more I accumulated for me the more you know wealth and women and you know uh, 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 things that people would admire, then the more that would make me feel significant and important and that my life mattered and that I was somebody. But really it's the exact opposite. The more I gave of myself, right? The more I poured myself into other people, then the more it fed you know this sense of validation. And to know that I was making a difference, that's why I get up. That's what makes me feel mm-hmm. that I'm living a purposeful, meaningful life. So there was a lot of really, really, really tough life lessons to learn throughout that process. But like I wouldn't trade it for the world. My only regret is that two beautiful human beings have to lose their lives in this process of me figuring out my purpose and my passion and 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 why i'm here on planet earth now let me go back to the first three years of my incarceration because so i had at that point i had i had gotten back in touch with my spiritual roots i was raised in a christian family and you know i believe that when that happens even if you depart from that like it never fully leaves you and so being that i was incarcerated and i was i was you know no longer having distractions and no longer intoxicated and things like that. I was able to get back in touch with that. And so I had prayed for forgiveness and I had in my heart of hearts believed that I had been forgiven by my higher power. In fact, the families, the family members, almost all of them during their victim impact statements at my sentencing a year into this had explicitly expressed to me that they had forgiven me because they knew this was Mm. not intentional and so there was there was that but i'm telling you as it is for most people the most difficult challenging part of this whole thing is forgiving ourselves and i struggled Mm. mightily with being able to forgive myself and so i would literally for the next three years even though i was i was committed to this this purpose and getting my education and learning all i could about addiction and things like that every december specifically for the entire month of December, I was not myself. I went into a state of depression, of, of, you know, uh, I wouldn't say self-pity because it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't ask for anybody to cry for me, right? I felt Mm -hmm. that I had to basically, you know, remember every vivid detail of this day for the whole month of December to for some crazy reason, like that was how I was honoring my victims. That's how I was showing that I'm never going to forget what happened, right? Because I felt yeah. that if I if I allowed myself to have feel some joy, if I allowed myself to laugh or go out to the yard and hang out with the fellas and lift weights and just have a jolly good time, that somehow that was doing a disservice and a dishonor to the lives that were taken. And so yeah. I, I just... I could not allow myself to forgive myself, at least for the month of December. Maybe it was dormant throughout the year, but I felt I felt it palpably every December for the first three years. And then, on that third year, I realized that you know this vow that I had made to the family members, to the media, to everybody in that packed courtroom that day, I was not fully honoring that by wasting this energy for an entire month if not more throughout the year that 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 you know um that i kind of dismissed but i was wasting that energy that could be poured into this mission and this purpose and this cause by sitting on my bunk not eating you know uh uh, just being miserable right and i Mm. had a choice in Mm. that a lot of us think that we don't we have a choice We get so much energy in a day and we get to decide how we're going to allocate that energy. And I can either put it into something that I have no control over, that I can't go back and change, that is not going to make a bit of difference to anybody outside of me, right? By putting my energy there, or I can channel that energy into what I said I was going to do fully and actually have it make a difference in somebody else's life, right? And so in that moment, I, I that's when I decided, no more. I'm not going to continue to wallow in this misery every December. I'm not going to make myself relive every vivid detail of this day for the entire 30, 31 days of December. I'm not going to do it. And so from that point on, I was able to fully throw myself into this. I started, you know, uh, I, I was almost like a counselor to the younger guys on the yard. I'd be walking around the yard. And the young guys you know as in prison as you can imagine there's not a lot of safe spaces to talk to guys about what's going on all you see are guys yeah. walking around with their chest puffed out with these mean mugs because everybody feels that they have to put on this facade so that they don't that so they don't look weak right but at the heart yeah. of it like because 80 percent of people across this country who are incarcerated have some issue with drugs and or alcohol whether they were selling it, using it, committing a crime to get money for it, 80%, right? And with yeah. that there's also a lot of trauma. And so nobody is going to just come up to anybody on a prison yard and start divulging their childhood trauma and abuse and things like that. I, however, mm-hmm. uh had a unique position because I started to work in the drug and alcohol program As an intern, when I was getting the clinical hours and I would do one on ones with guys and I'm telling you, like the stuff that guys would tell me about their childhoods and tears like real tears from inmates, um, you know, during those sessions, it just it, it just reaffirmed to me the notion that that my calling is to be a substance abuse counselor. Um, and to help people process this trauma and, you know, these um, just these barriers to them reaching their fullest potential and living a life of recovery and satisfaction and, you know, and purpose. And so those were unique opportunities. Um, you know, that was that was when I knew that I, I was definitely on the right track and that this was definitely going to be my life's my life's mission. And so Just uh, to fast forward, I started speaking to DUI victim impact panels within the prison starting in 2015. They would bring in victims uh, from the community who had lost loved ones to DUI drivers. So there would be a a room of of 50 inmates, and one of of them would tell their story, and then one of us on the inside who had committed this crime would tell our story, obviously with full remorse and contrition and and accountability, but it was a really restorative justice healing environment right and and i think we definitely need more of that as opposed to this 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 retributive lock them up throw away the key um model that we've used that hasn't reduced recidivism it's only you know it's only uh, uh, ballooned the the prison population throughout this country to over 2.3 million people and so if the model yeah. is broken just like a business model uh usually you would look to revamp that model and so I, i'm i'm hoping that uh, the restorative justice model will, will, you know, gain some some momentum in this country. It's used in other countries, New Zealand and Australia mm-hmm. and other places like that, and with a lot of success, right? Statistically, the success is there. You can see it for yourself. But, um, you know, hopefully the United States will get on board with that. So I, I, I got involved with that, and uh, that has led to making a lot of connections to where I've been out now a year and almost two months And uh, I've continued speaking at DUI victim impact panels out here in the community, speak to uh, minors who have gotten a minor in possession charge. So they're just headed down that wrong path at 17, 18 years old. Uh, I work as a substance abuse counselor and a suicide prevention specialist. I take calls on the national suicide prevention line, talk to people in their lowest moments, and uh, try my best to give them hope to hang on for another day. And then we connect them with resources, whatever state They're in. We connect them with uh, mental health and drug and alcohol resources in their communities. So I would encourage anybody out there who is struggling and doesn't know where to turn. They can either call 988 now. That's a beautiful thing that the country did just a few weeks ago. 988 for anybody in a mental health crisis whatsoever. And even if it's drug and alcohol related and you don't feel suicidal, you can still call it because whoever answers that line will have some drug and alcohol uh, uh, treatment resources uh, at their disposal to be able to give you, so I'm um, just happy to happy to be a part of that as well.
0: Well, uh, everything in our life, you know, begins and ends with us. But in your story, you've met and had some pretty amazing people. Uh, so tell me about some of the amazing people that have been part of the community of your healing and your progress out of what could have been, you know, your own demise and. And the most powerful example of that you mentioned in a different interview in that comes to mind for me is when the inmates, when the convicted felons and the family members came together, you you said something along the lines of, you, you know, uh, we commit uh, uh, mistakes and uh, bad things happen in a community. So why don't we heal them in a community? We, we expect, you know, we're such Americans about the individual, but... So all of this big long question is just to say, tell me about the role of community in your healing, and tell me about some of the in the most uh, important people that you've met along the way that have helped you.
1: Sure, and I really like this question. You're the first person actually to to, to embark on this, but you're absolutely right because I could have I could have done none of this uh, or very little of this were it not for. The, the many beautiful, amazing people who played huge roles in my life almost from the beginning. So the most integral person in this in this whole process is my partner, my fiance. And we actually met a year and a half into this 17 and a half year sentence via a pen pal uh, correspondence, mm-hmm. right? I put myself on a pen pal website. I was lonely. I wanted some letters from the outside community, as we all do when we're locked up and she had just seen a documentary on on inmates and it talked about the power of a letter and how it can just totally change an inmate's day and brighten up their whole day and she's got one of the biggest hearts you'll ever meet and she so she said well hmm, i like to brighten an inmate's day so she goes to the internet she doesn't know where to start where to look how to find a pen pal so she just typed in prison pen pal or whatever it was and there's thousands of Profiles on there of guys trying to, you know, get get pen pals, and so um, she said she settled on mine because I didn't have a mean mug, I didn't have my shirt off with all my muscles, you know, for the whole world to see, <laughs> and I had my hands in my pockets. And she said, oh, he's kind of shy. He's cute. He's got a smile. So she reads my ad, and it was talking about some of the things I wanted to do while I was incarcerated. So I I didn't I didn't appear threatening. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so she wrote me, and and we struck up a correspondence. And for the first six months, it was just we were just eager to get each other's letters. It was nothing romantic or anything like that. It was just two people getting to know each other. We had a lot in common, and um, even though she, you know, she was in the military and and had been there many years, and you know, I had come from the streets, so we had very different backgrounds, but there was a lot of lot of commonality between us as well. So over six months and getting to know one another. We started talking on the phone and then uh six months after that she came to visit me uh 2500 miles away and she stayed all five days and would visit in the morning and afternoon she did that every six months so by this point we're in a relationship we talk on the phone three or four times a day and when it came to the things she, she took an interest in what i wanted to do with my time and i told her i said well i want to get degrees I want to become a counselor. I don't know how that's going to happen. So she was the one. So even when my dad passed away and I got the money, you still need somebody on the outside to be able to contact the universities, order, you know, pay pay for the classes, order the materials, go to Amazon and order the textbooks and have them sent to me, order the, 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 the midterms and the final exams that had to be sent to the education office at the prison because they had to be proctored exams. So she did all of that legwork, right? She supported me. She believed in me. And I tell her this all the time. She believed in me before I believed in myself. And there was a psychologist who had come into the prison years later. And he's a renowned psychologist. He's been on you know NBC and CNN and all these shows. And he said that the difference, because he works with those who are incarcerated. And he said that one of the biggest reasons why people rehabilitate is because they have at least one person on the outside who's absolutely crazy about them. Mm-hmm. That is the biggest motivator because once you know that somebody is in your corner and that you're not doing this thing alone, and they, you know, and it's, it's like they're your personal cheerleader, and so you want to do well. If, if not for yourself, you want to do well for them because they believe in you, and you want to make them proud. And then you start to gain this momentum and you start to actually believe in yourself. Right. And so, and she, and so I'm here in Pennsylvania, we live together. Uh, we're getting married next year. Um, she spent the next 16 years with me solidly.
0: 16 years. uh, Helped me
1: get two books published 16 years.
0: Flying back and forth, right. To see you cross country. Correct.
1: Flying. Absolutely. Every six months. And I'm just so blessed, so blessed to have her in my life. So she was the first and most instrumental person in in everything that I am today and who I've become. And then there's been others along the way. So, for instance, there's Leanne, who started the DUI Victim Impact Panels within the prison uh, as a volunteer, right? Because they don't pay people to bring those programs in. You have to volunteer. Mm -hmm. So she would drive three hours one way to the prison and bring somebody because she was affiliated with the DUI panels in the community that people are required to attend once they've gotten their first DUI. So then the the the, the DA requires that they complete this panel and go to go through some other courses to get their, their licenses back. So she thought, well, why not bring this program inside where men who have done this, you know, uh uh can hear from other people where they have lost someone to a DUI driver and help build this healing cathartic, restorative justice community where there was a woman who would come in. She had lost her 18-year-old daughter uh, like 20 years ago, 20 years prior. And the the guy who had committed the offense never apologized. He, you know, took this, woe is me. This shouldn't be happening to me. Why am I going to prison? This was an accident, blah, blah, blah. And she harbored this resentment for 20 plus years toward this guy. Rightfully so. Right. I mean, that's the least this guy could have done is apologize after killing her daughter. Right. And so she comes into the prison. She tells her story amongst 50 inmates and not all inmates are there for for DUI drivers. Some guys are murderers. Some guys are, you know, serial rapists and and robbers and burglars. And I mean, just across the board. Right. But guys are there voluntarily because it's like one of the good you know, uh, uh, humane programs that are, you know, the in the prison, that guys can be a part of. And so she tells her story and you can just feel, you can feel like the condemnation that she had in that room pretty much toward all of us because we represented her offender, right? And then the guy, so when she's done speaking, the guy who was designated to tell his story that day, a good friend of mine, I still keep in contact to this day, he had a DUI crash where he killed one person and severely injured four people. And and he always starts his presentations by asking people for a moment of silence to honor those that he had taken. And before he even starts speaking, he looked at that woman and he said, Ma'am, he said, I know I am not the person who killed your daughter. And I'm so sorry that happened. And please accept my apology on his behalf that that happened. And... I'm telling you, like, I can't even describe what it felt like. But afterwards, she stood up and she thanked him for that in front of all of us. And she talked about how she had held a grudge and bitterness toward this man for all these years. And she said, I know you're not the man who did that, did this to my, my family. But I've been waiting to hear those words for over 20 years. And I cannot tell you what that has meant to me and she came in several times after that and she just she was hugging guys when she would come in it was just her whole demeanor had changed like a whole weight had been lifted and so that's what i say is that you know when we offend society when we commit a crime in our community the pain is felt communally it's not just the person who was victimized or their families that is felt in a communal sense people feel like the safety has been violated the, the community trust has been violated it's felt the pain is felt you know it's reverberated it it is felt throughout the community so if the pain is is felt in a communal sense then likewise wouldn't it naturally mean that the healing process has to be done in a communal setting right and yeah. so if you bring yeah. the victim and the offender together and again this is the whole restorative justice model that obviously there's got to be contrition and accountability and a way to make amends. But it also makes the the offender feel that they're not totally ostracized from their community, that there is a place for mm-hmm. them to come back to, that they are going to be accepted and embraced, that there are things they can do to make amends to the community for the harms that they've caused. This is what the restorative justice model is about. It's not about throwing you away and saying, you did a bad thing. You're unworthy of coming back to this community. We want nothing to do with you. Good riddance, Right. Because yeah. the bottom line is that 95, 96% of those who are incarcerated throughout this country will at some point return to a community. The question yeah. is, how do you want that person to return?
0: Well, where would you recommend to go to write a letter to an inmate? Is there a particular site or should we just go to Google and find um, you know, the the site of our choice or is there one that's better than another?
1: The top three that I I kind of, you know, stayed on throughout my sentence, if I can remember them, Uh, prison inmates online was one of them. Inmate connections, I think, was another one. Oh, prison pen pals. Prison pen pals was was a really good one as well. Um, And I would just say to use discretion if you're new to this process and you want to support an inmate, because as you can imagine. There's also a lot of people who are there to manipulate, take advantage of, sure. get over on, right? But but there are some genuinely good, you know, people on there that's just looking to make connections with people on the outside. So just imagine if if you're that one person who was my one person who kind of set everything in motion and and gave me a reason to, to to want to live this life and to be of service to other people. Um, you know, so anybody can, can, can be that for somebody, right? We all find ourselves at some point in a rock bottom and it's, it's so easy to kind of give up and lose hope and to think, well, this is all it's ever going to be. So I may as well, you know, just kind of stay down here, lay down flat on this rock bottom and just live my life that way. But I'm telling you, there is a reason why you are going through whatever it is that you're going through. I, I genuinely believe that there are valuable, uh, invaluable life lessons to be taken from that that are supposed to be used to shape and to mold us and to grow us and to enable us, right, to reach higher uh, for ourselves. And and the only way that we fully reach our, our potential in this life, I firmly believe, is when we are of service to other people. It can never solely be about us right? Being the greatest this or that that we want to be for ourselves, it has to include other people. And so if you're looking for a way to dig yourself out of your ditch, uh, find a way to be to to be of service to somebody else. And I guarantee you that will be the spark that will that will allow you to to fully um, actualize uh, your potential.
0: It's funny you say spark because my very first guest, um is my friend Vonda, and I said, uh, I, na- I named that episode uh, season one, episode one with Vonda Roney from Hoboken, New Jersey, and I called her the spark that I needed to stop the madness. And yeah, you could be, we could be a spark to, to someone uh, just by doing something simple uh, that could they, that could lead to something for us, or maybe it could lead to something for them. My last question for you, um, this is what I ask all my guests here in season two, but if you only had thirty seconds left, uh, what would you say to the world with that last few moments that you had?
1: I would say that every day is a gift, and you get to decide how you're going to to spend that day. And I would say to make sure that you make it count, uh, because tomorrow is not promised to anybody, and it doesn't mean to live recklessly or you know uh, stupidly, but make it purposeful. And make it count
0: there you go uh, martin lockett is uh, such an honor to meet you uh to get to spend this hour with you and to get to share your story with uh my little audience here on this little startup podcast and and again i'm so honored that you would uh reach out to me and and spend this time Uh, to share your story. I know that it it can't be easy to do that. And um, um, where can people connect with you if they want to reach out to you?
1: Uh, So I am on Instagram at Lockett, And then there's also my website, uh, martinlockett.com. And I am also the co-host of uh, Rock the Bottom Podcast, which is also on Instagram and obviously all the, the platforms. So thank you so much uh, dana for having me it was truly an honor and a pleasure to be here you do amazing work and uh please keep doing what you're doing uh it's, it's so
0: important in this in this community you know i i've been finding in my own recovery i can't do this alone not just that i can't i can't do it by myself like the old american pick yourself up by your bootstraps and or you know the in the army it was you know suck it up and <laughs> drink some water and keep keep moving Um, it's not just about me not being able to go, but it's also, I can't do it without other people to serve. Like I have to serve other people too. And I want to thank you for um, kind of confirming that for me and for encouraging anyone who is out there who might be in a rock bottom or someone who is, in early sobriety who is really wrestling with guilt about things that they've done. I've got things that I've done drunk that um, I'm I'm very ashamed of and um, working through that self-forgiveness is not easy, but um, you know, maybe like you said, healing comes in community uh, in terms of, you know, making amends with people that we've hurt. but. Even forgiving ourselves, it sounds like also has to happen in community. I think that's the thing that I'm going to take away from this conversation today. But um, again, Martin, thank you for joining us again. You can connect with him on Instagram at Martin L Lockett. That's two L's, two T's or martinlockett.com. And uh, if you'd like to, Write a letter to an inmate. I challenge you today to go to prisonpenpals.com or just Google. And again, using discretion as Martin recommended. Make a small act of service. Uh, by reaching out to someone. And even if you don't write to an inmate, uh, find someone to serve today. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again here on the next episode of I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye. And uh, Martin and Al and I send you our best sober vibes by saying goodbye, alcohol, and hello life. Much love to you all and peace. Quick heads up, I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye Premium members had full-length unedited access to this episode two weeks before it aired. That's just one of the six perks you can get for $6 a month by joining at supercast.com. The link is in the show notes and it's super easy to sign up. So whether you join or not, Alan, I just want to thank you for listening to the show and we'll see you here next time.